0: I'm Rachel. And I'm Leah. And And this this is is Hashtag Hashtag History. History, the podcast for both history nerds and history haters alike,
1: where we dive into history's greatest stories of controversy, conspiracy, and corruption. This is Hashtag History Episode 40. I'm Rachel. And I'm Leah. And this is our season four finale. We have had yet another super awesome, super fun season talking all things nerdy history. This was one of my personal favorite seasons ever because we had episodes about super badass women like Sophie Scholl. But we also covered really creepy stories like the Dyatlov Pass or even the history of the electric chair.
0: And we took a look at the Hindenburg disaster and my favorite, the opening of Disneyland.
1: I loved, loved, loved that episode because it was like a change up from what we normally do. We normally have like really dark, morbid topics, but we talked about Disneyland and it was really magical and wonderful. Yeah. The other thing really cool that we did with this season uh, was we introduced bonus episodes. Yeah, we
0: started these little bonus episodes called Hasty History Episodes, which are quick, straight-to-the-point episodes with a very brief overview of some of your favorite history topics.
1: It's been a really amazing season, and we want to thank you all so much for being a part of this journey.
0: Yeah, I'm going to get a bit sappy here, but we are in awe of your guys' constant support, and man, do we feel the love from this little history podcast. community of ours and from you our listeners
1: thank you all so so much with this being our finale episode you guys know that we always like to conclude our seasons with a really cool episode and so today, to help close out season four, we have two super special guests on the podcast. We have Emily and Kelly from the Whining About History podcast. I want to give them both the opportunity to introduce themselves, so I won't say too much here. But I will tell you why we love them. Uh, number one, because Emily and Kelly are a duo female-hosted history podcast. Does that sound what, what? familiar? Yeah. <laughs> and also because they include a little wine segment with each of their episodes. Does that sound familiar to anybody? So I'm going to leave it at that and hand it over to Emily and Kelly. Tell our listeners a little bit about your podcast and also where they can find you.
2: Well, thank you, Rachel and Leah, so much for having us. I'm Emily from Whining About Street. And I'm Kelly. And uh, this is like a dream come true because we're both huge fans of your podcast. We're so excited. <laughs> we were, when,
3: when you like approached us, we were like, oh, my God, is this happening? Oh, my like, God. Oh, my <laughs> God.
2: You guys are so sweet. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we host a women's history podcast where we cover Women from history her- that you probably haven't heard of. So we're not going to cover women like Amelia Earhart or Marie Curie, but we're covering people like uh, Gladys Bentley, Marsha P. Johnson. Uh, we I loved that episode. Also covered <laughs> Sophie you. Scholl. So it did my heart so well to hear you guys cover her. <laughs> and we cover at least
3: at least two women an episode because we each cover at least one although sometimes we'll cover two or three or you know Emily went above and beyond and did seven in one episode because she likes to show off <laughs> I'm such a show <laughs> off <laughs> extra um, credit but you know when we, we try to get to not only like the amazing things they did but just you know what their lives were like as well
2: and it's been a really incredible journey because we're not only learning about these women, but also the worlds in which they were living in and gra- getting like a, a better, more well-rounded view of history, mm-hmm. but also, you know, seeing like, oh, wow, we're also dealing with those issues today. Isn't that super yep. depressing? <laughs> yes. Um, and,
3: and we can be found anywhere you listen to podcasts. So like any of the major platforms, Stitcher,
2: Podchaser, Google, Apple Podcasts. Apple. So yeah. And then you can also find us on Facebook, Whining About Herstory, uh, Instagram, W A H Pod, Twitter at WAH underscore pod. And we also have a website that's
3: whiningaboutherstory.com.
1: Well, we are so, so excited to have you guys on the podcast today because I am a huge fan of your guys' podcast, especially since uh, the quarantine. You guys have become my... uh, So I'm working from home and I have like a 30-minute lunch break every day. And you guys have become the podcast that I listen to on my bike rides that i take during my 30 minute lunch breaks so Aww, i i and i have officially now made it all the way through all of your episodes as of yesterday yay i'm not crying
3: you're crying i, know, right? <laughs> that's so, that's so sweet. I think i'm i think i'm one i haven't listened to your guys's latest but otherwise i'm starting from the beginning that, i'm completely caught up
1: yes so, that's very impressive and we uh are very thankful that you got through that rough patch of audio quality (laughs) at the beginning. Again,
2: I super don't remember it. I just remember being like, why isn't this guy in jail? Right. Yes. (laughs) It's
1: okay. We all all
2: love
3: each other and we can just move on from bad audio mistakes.
1: (laughs) Well, we are super excited to have you guys again. Thank you so much for coming on. And something that I really love that you guys do, like you mentioned, uh, not only do you focus on women's history, which is a severely underrepresented topic and so important to cover, but I also love that you both focus on amazing, badass women in history. You guys always have such a positive, girl power take with each of the women you cover, and that plays perfectly into what we are covering on today's episode. Because today, we are handing the reins over to Emily and Kelly to tell us about an amazing woman in history that revolutionized the medical field for good. And then, in true hashtag history, dark and morbid fashion, Leah and I will be following up their story with one of our own about a horrific woman on the flip side of history that also worked in the medical field, but uh, kind of, sort of... Murdered upwards of 31 of the patients in her care, as so. one does, yeah, as one does, yeah. <laughs> you know.
0: And on that horrific note, it's time to drink. Um, Emily and Kelly have a segment on their podcast, much like our cocktail segment, where they share a new favorite wine of the week. So, on that note, we're
2: gonna let them just take it away. Woo-hoo. All right, so uh, today. We picked a wine called Gnarly Head because uh, both of our stories have to do a lot with mental health. And as someone who struggles with mental health myself, Gnarly Head is a gr- pretty good way to describe how I am some days. <laughs> it's, it's rough, but, you know, if you can laugh at it, it's going to be OK. So uh, this is uh, Gnarly Head's Authentic Red, California 2017. So right by you gals.
1: Yes. We've taken many a girl trip to Napa. Mm-hmm.
3: Well, when we hit up California one day on our Herstory tour, we'll, we'll pick you guys up and go have some.
2: Heck yes. Heck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I'm going to uh, turn on my sexy NPR voice to read the description on this bottle. Ooh, Authentic red is a rowdy blend of Zinfandel, Merlot, and Syrah with a splash of Malbec. The Zinfandel component in this blend hails from some of the oldest vines in California, and these brash, unruly vines produce full-flavored grapes. Authentic red has a juicy core of lush black cherry and raspberry (laughs) flavors with layers of spice and vanilla. Stop. (laughs) <laughs> Boldly pair this wine with barbecue ribs, a hearty burger, oh. or go all oh. out with New Orleans-style red beans and rice. Or you
3: know, just a good herstery podcast.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm.
3: <laughs> that was fantastic.
2: Oh my gosh, I should work on an adult phone line.
3: One hundred percent. I know she has such a good NPR voice. I get I get too into it. So it, it does smell good so Cheer, cheers cheers to your season finale ladies yeah, yeah. thank
1: you Ooh, Ooh. that was really good that was a good Ooh. clink that was an excellent that clink. was a
2: girl power clink
1: mm. i'm
3: gonna say, I
2: I'm really gonna say like emily's this. favorite word
3: it has a really good mouthfeel yes
2: excellent mouthfeel <laughs> that is my favorite wine term I don't understand why they couldn't think of something less creepy. Like, they could have just said texture or viscosity. I don't (laughs) know. (laughs) Like,
1: anything that's less pervy. (laughs) I just, I
2: like mouthfeel.
1: This is excellent. And I, Leah knows, am not a wine connoisseur. I have no idea. anything. Like, one time, here's an example of being in Napa. I did a wine tasting, and... This really hipster, really cool guy was like, you know, serving us the wine. And he's like, all right. You know, he's like, you know how they always do it, like wine tastings. They're like educating you and stuff, Mm. right? So he's educating me on like, this one comes from this valley and from these vineyards and this and this and this. And um, I don't know. He's kind of like walking me through learning wine. So he is under the impression that by the time he serves me the last glass of wine, I have become... Uh, <laughs> you could do his job. <laughs> so, yes. Yes. So he comes over. He like pours the last one. He's like, all right, now, you know, switch it around in the glass. Bring it to your nose. What are you smelling? And I'm like, you know, feeling like very cool. And I'm like, uh, I think I'm getting like hints of oak. And he literally didn't even like no no poker face at all. He was like, "You are completely wrong." That it, I wow. He was I like, he's like,
4: st- <laughs> the oh my
0: gosh. <laughs>
1: he he literally was like, uh, no, there are absolutely no hints of oak. Uh, I really don't know where you got that from. Like, and I was like, okay. So from <laughs> there forward, I don't attempt to describe wine.
3: And you know because what? Because I'm afraid. Yeah, that's why we just read the descriptions. Yeah, and, and then we talk wine about what. We feel,
2: but yeah, we always say we're not wine experts. Also, but what we do know is there is a word in the wine world for someone like that, and it's butthole. <laughs>
3: <laughs> not, not you, the
2: guy. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, yeah just no. to say. Well, because that's the I nice love thing about wine. It's so subjective. I mean- if you enjoy a box wine, that doesn't make you trashy or lower class. Exactly. If you don't like $100 we have a hundred dollar bottle wine, coming up. Like we do have a box wine coming up. <laughs> I told Emily
3: I would get one one day, and I did finally. <laughs> because you know what? I we love don't it.
2: Discriminate against wine, okay? <laughs> All wines are beautiful. I,
3: um, the other reason we picked it because gnarly head is the brand, not like this specific wine. Um. Mm-hmm was because there is a study that suggests drinking red wine can bring health benefits for you. So there's a study that says that red wine may help in curbing some mind-related issues, such as depression and anxiety. Um, And it goes to a compound called Reservatrol. That's probably completely wrong. Present only in red wine. Um, So they they say that it it helps block stress hormones and which excessive levels can cause, you know, depression and anxiety. Um, But they also do say, you know, we're not saying go out and drink bottles of red wine because red wine and wine in general suppresses the body's nervous system. So they're like, you know, drink. it can help in moderation. But, you know, if you drink too much, you can end up with, yeah. you know, sleep problems and altered judgment and being tired. And, you know, yeah. so they're, I, they're like, it helps, but don't don't chug wine. That, that doesn't it. help. <laughs> you know, like be like the French, you know, like maybe a glass of red wine with dinner. And there that's is a line.
1: <laughs> There's a line. Well, I will say um, I'm very much enjoying this wine and I am very nervous because you ladies are starting uh this week's episode and I am nervous because I'm going to finish an entire glass of wine and then have a couple sips of a cocktail before I even get to my part so yeah no it's good we're starting
3: with the lower stuff because then you know if I'm really drunk by the end it's fine because you're talking yeah (laughs) there you go (laughs) well thanks it's your episode you can be sloppy drunk it's fine
2: yeah yeah (laughs) we need to be polite we are guests in your podcast
3: All right. Are we ready to jump in? Yes.
4: Mm -hmm.
2: All right. So uh, for our segment, we are covering medical and mental health hero, Dorothea Dix. I'm surprised
4: you didn't do the
3: alliteration and say Maven.
2: The, the medical and mental health maven, Dorothea. Dix. <laughs> She's
3: all about alliteration, so when she didn't do it, I was a little shocked.
2: Dorothea Dix was born in Hampton, Maine on April 4th, 1802, as the first child of three. Her parents had mm. deep roots in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, which for your international listeners is one of the earliest English settlements in America. Yep. Uh,
3: unfortunately, though, Dorothy's mother struggled with co- chronic health problems. Uh, making her an
2: inconsistent presence in her children's lives. I feel that.
4: Mm. That sucks. Right. That's gotta be tough. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, to make it even tougher, Dorothea's father was a traveling book salesman and preacher who was never around.
3: To make it even tougher than that, her <laughs> parents were both alcoholics and her father was abusive when he was around. Boom, boom, oh. boom. Yeah. Left, <laughs> left, right hooks over here.
1: Yeah, triple
3: hits.
2: It was likely due to this, combined with the absence of her father and her mother's chronic illness, that 12-year-old Dorothea and her two younger brothers were sent to Boston to live with their soup's rich grandmother, also named Dorothea, and her husband, Dr. Elijah. It's because she's married to a doctor, let's be real. Yeah.
3: Uh, (laughs) Now, Dorothea, the one we're talking about, not the grandma... Uh, at only 14 years old, um, she was very bright and began to teach at an all girls school in Worcester, Massachusetts. She even developed her own curriculum for them, which included teachings on ethical living and natural sciences.
2: I was 13 when I first got to start babysitting, <laughs> and she is running her own school. Yeah. Like, blowing my mind.
1: <laughs> I in, I in excellent point. Yeah, right? <laughs> it's like, oh,
3: God, I've just <laughs> I've done, done nothing with it. my life.
1: <laughs> I was hesitating there to think about what I was doing at 14. And, uh, Yeah, I think I started my first, like, nannying gig when I was, like, 14, 15 years old. I
3: think I was writing really terrible horror stories. I might have (laughs) have gotten published at 14. I can't remember. Ooh. It was either 14 or 16. (laughs) But they were really bad. And, like, going back and reading them, I'm like, why? Why did anyone publish this?
0: (laughs) I was writing really bad songs on the guitar. That's
2: right. Hey, that's okay. So in 1821, when Dorothea was 19 years old, again, at that time, I was doing nothing, she opened her own school. After five years of teaching, I imagine she had a pretty good handle on the whole thing. Like, she just, no schooling, no education. She's like, I'll figure it out.
3: She's it's like, insane. I got this. Um, her school had students from a lot of wealthy families in the area, but she wasn't solely dedicated just to serving wealthy families. She also taught the children of poor families, but out of her grandmother's barn. We're not really sure why. Don't know why it had to be the barn, but, but it was. It, well, it it's for the poor, so. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They don't get a fancy schoolhouse.
2: She would write devotional books for the children she taught. One such book, Conversations on Common Things, was originally published in 1824 and had been reprinted 66 times by 1869. Yes, wow. the world's most boring-sounding book was reprinted <laughs> 60 times. <It> was that
0: <laughs> good.
3: Yeah, (laughs) apparently that's what you need.
2: Yeah. Whenever you
3: make something, just make it sound really boring. And then when it's not, people will be like, this is amazing.
2: This is such a boring title. It must be good if they're that confident (laughs) to give it such a boring title. I love it. The book was written for other young women in the teaching profession and was written in the style of conversations between a mother and a daughter. Dorothea's goal was to provide education to women at the same level as men, and the book promoted this value.
3: Now, this is me editorializing, but I imagine she was trying to create a book that could provide motherly guidance to these women, especially since she didn't have a motherly guidance or even a strong relationship with her own mother.
2: I love that. She also wrote The Garland of Flora in 1829, which was one of the first two flower dictionaries in the United States. Slightly more interesting, right? I'm pretty sure the other one was also written by a woman,
3: I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure. Not 100% sure. But I think I remember it being a woman's name when we were doing our research.
2: But then dudes got into flowers and pretended that they invented flowers (laughs) and flower dictionaries. And yeah, it's just a male-dominated field now. Sadly, during all this time, Dorothea
3: was known to have, quote unquote, poor health like her mother. This was probably code for having depressive episodes, which then manifested into other health issues, as it's known to do. Um, And it makes me wonder if her mother was also like super depressed or had some other
2: like mental issues um, and that's why she was sick all the time. And sometimes on our podcast, we do uh, Herstory headcanon where we make some really wild leaps and just establish something as it yep. totally happened. We're not, I don't think we're reaching that far with assuming her mother was probably yeah. depressed and Dorothea probably sure. inherited yeah. we're that. We're just
3: definitely Herstory headcanoning this, but it's, <laughs>
2: you know, instead of being like, oh, you know,
3: she had a unicorn, it's, yeah, no, this probably actually happened. Yeah, it's a little less yeah. audacious than we normally
2: get. Unfortunately, the depression became so severe that Dorothea had to give up her school, instead becoming a governess or like a nanny, which, you know, so instead I guess it of, would be a know, little being less stressful. like 50 children. She's like three. <laughs> yeah. She worked for the family of prominent Unitarian intellectual William Ellery Channing. Not Channing Tatum. Bummer. (laughs) While working for the Channing, not Tatum family, Dorothea traveled with them to St. Croix where she first witnessed the horrors of slavery because this is the 1800s and that's the thing. Yep.
1: Yeah. I imagine just because you were saying she became like a governess. Isn't that what Julie Andrews is called in Sound of Music? Yep. And if this were the Channing family and uh, Channing Tatum was Mr. Von Trapp, You can sign me up for that right. even if it is with, like, a dozen horrifically misbehaved children. I will be there. I'd be there, too.
2: Don't worry. (laughs) Magic Mike meets Sound of Music. Okay.
3: This this needs to happen. happen. We need to, like, email some Hollywood directors and be like, guys, done. We have this pitch, but we all have to be
2: in the movie. (laughs) They (laughs) churn out. (laughs) In some form, we all have to show up. (laughs) They churn out so much garbage, and we are giving them gold
1: on a silver platter. Oh, my God. In
3: 1831, Dorothea returned to teaching from her governess job, and established a model school for girls in Boston, which she actually operated for five years until a combination of overwork and untreated depression again caused her to suffer from a breakdown. Uh, We read in one place that she, quote unquote, dwelled on the idea of death, which to us sounds like code for her probably being suicidal. Or at least having
2: like suicidal ideation.
1: Yeah, the really the really bothersome thing here too, is just how far we've come in terms of mental health and understanding that it's uh it's an illness just like any other physical illness. But in the 1800s, I mean, that was like, oftentimes they were considered to have like a demon inside them or something, right. or uh, like, some, yeah, some kind of like demonic affliction, mm-hmm. or we don't know what's wrong with that person. It was, it was severe. Like today we see all the time, untreated depression yep. I mean, imagine 200 years ago it was just not even a recognized thing well, and so so many times it was like we heard about her mother that it was just
3: oh they're they're sick we're just gonna keep her out of the public eye and just you know she's sick it's fine don't think about her don't worry about her it's fine right it's fine yeah.
2: <laughs> or even just as damaging it was seen as a uh, a moral deficit oh well mm-hmm. you're a bad person and that's why you yes. have these problems so screw you right in an attempt to improve her health, Dorothea traveled to Europe, where she was inspired by British social reforms of the time. Let's be honest, she probably went to the south of France. <laughs> yeah, that's that the thing. South it was like, France.
3: oh, you have depression, you're rich, go to the south of France. Can I can I get in on that?
2: Can I get a prescription <laughs> for a trip to Europe? Because I am also teetering on the end right? of the breakdown. Like,
3: <laughs> I
0: think
2: we all are, to be honest. You have, yeah. an- you have anxiety, go to the south of France for Please. two weeks. Okay. Now, while I would normally be basking like on the beach or shopping or doing something completely unproductive, Dorothea was all about the hustle. While in England she lived with political reformer William Rathbone, met prison reformer Elizabeth Fry, and met the founder of the York Retreat for the Mentally Ill, Samuel Tuke. She also visited a mental institution in Turkey which she saw as a model for future institutions. I guess the conditions still sucked but the way they ran things was a little better. The bar was so low back. Then. <laughs> right. I was like um. it was probably just like
3: hey These prisoners are kind of treated like human beings, or not prisoners, the mentally ill are kind of treated like human beings. So, you know, it's better than, you know, not that.
2: Yeah. Which we'll get into in a minute. So she's like being exposed to all these new reformational ideas, and it's amazing. Yes. This
3: was Mm -hmm. very eye opening for Dorothea, who was inspired by Reformation ideals and the idea that the government should support the most vulnerable in society.
2: What a novel concept. (laughs) My God. These ideals would follow her when she returned to Boston in 1837, shortly after her grandmother's death, which is sad. But what's not super sad is Dorothea received an inheritance from her soup's wealthy grandmother, which basically set her up for life, making it rain. And this allowed her to make activism and reform her full time job. So not
3: that, wow. not that I want my grandmother to die
2: because I don't know. <laughs> But if some like
3: soups wealthy person just wants to give me a bunch of money so I can like, you know, podcast full time or something, I'd be down. Yeah,
1: I'd be down. There was there was a gal that I worked with. She was like sort of friends with a neighbor down the road like that owned this like mansion. Basically, she was it was just like an older lady yeah. that she would like sometimes bring her newspaper into her or like if she heard she wasn't feeling well, she'd bring her Campbell soup or something like that. Right. This lady, she wasn't close to her. But this lady didn't have any family whatsoever. So when she passed away, she left my coworker like $50,000. I would love that. Oh, my God. For for bringing her Campbell's soup. Right? She was
3: just like, hey, you were nice to me. You can have some of my money. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Maybe I need to be nicer to people. I don't know. (laughs) I know. Maybe that's what it is. That's why I hold the door open right?
2: for people. One of these days, I'm going to hold the door open for a wealthy person. And they're going to be no like, no honey, Emily,
3: what's your name?
2: Yes. <laughs> Instead, I hold doors open for men and they are either surprised or they say, ooh, all these liberated women. I just love or it. Or they get
1: aggressive <laughs> and they're like, why are you holding the door open? And it's like, <laughs> screw you. <laughs> Anyways. Well, I'm sure uh, you guys being a women's history podcast you guys are familiar with Nellie Bly although I don't know you guys have you you haven't covered her right we have
3: we've covered uh girl stunt reporters which is what she did but she's kind of too famous for her
1: wheelhouse but we did mention her in that episode that's a I feared she was like a little too uh too well known for you guys to cover because I know you guys like to really cover the underrepresented women but this just learning about Dorothea Dix is giving me kind of just a little bit of Nellie Bly vibes, even though it was 50 years later uh, for anyone that doesn't know, Nellie Bly was an investigative journalist and she was phenomenal and revolutionary. And one of the things she did was she spent 10 days in an insane asylum basically to kind of get the ins on like what was going on inside the institution and to learn the ways that it needed to be reformed. And so even, I mean, that's like 50 years from the story that we're talking about right now. Right. Uh, Mental health was still so disregarded. I mean, it still is today. But in the, it was the late 1800s when Nellie Bly was like inside, yep. seeing how horribly mentally ill patients were treated. Yeah, it it really didn't get too much better. Yeah. So
2: spoiler: Dorothea Dix did amazing things, but she did not fix everything. No. <laughs> so
3: during this during this time, she decided to start teaching classes to the female prisoners in East Cambridge, Massachusetts, and witnessed how many prisoners were people who just needed treatment for mental illness. They weren't Mm -hmm. actually, like, criminals.
2: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Dorothea was also horrified how people who were described as, quote, unquote, loony paupers were being thrown in the same, quote, dark and bare cells as violent criminals. Wow, that would be
3: terrifying. Like, especially if you weren't fully there. Like, like let's say you had like schizophrenia or you know like a disassociative like problem, episode. and suddenly you're like in with these like hardcore like scary people. Like, how terrifying would that be if you're not fully oh, yeah. there to begin with, and then when you are fully there, the person you're like in with is just like a terrible, terrible person
2: yeah you have anxiety you stab someone be best friends right they're totally on the same level yeah wow absolutely awful and we still see this today in the 80s uh that was a big problem out in california Mm -hmm. uh because they were just filling uh the prisons with homeless people and mentally ill people and they were shutting down all the hospitals and people lost access to their medications and when you're not on your meds it's kind of hard to keep it together So partly because of this and just other things going on in
3: the world at the time, Dorothea started conducting a statewide examination in Massachusetts of how the mentally
2: ill and poor were cared for. What she found surprised no one. She found that the existing mental health system was rife with abuse. Gasp. (laughs) In many cases, towns hired untrained locals to care for the mentally ill who didn't have any family or friends to do it. So any wow. yahoo could take in a mentally ill person and do whatever they wanted. Like
3: It, it reminds wow. me of like when they started like the foster care system before they had like all the vetting processes oh, where people would just take in kids to get money. Mm-hmm. I mean, they still do. Yeah, That's still <laughs> that's an basic, issue. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> that's and, very much they, still a
1: thing. They did this with mentally ill people. Yep. What could go Why wrong? Why would you think? Yeah, from uh, personal experience with mental health issues, there are very often times that I feel ill-equipped. Yeah, You know, I, I, don't have, I don't have a degree in this. I haven't studied this. I haven't uh, dedicated my life to learning how to help. And so hearing these stories are like really horrific to hear yeah. that people that had absolutely no qualifications for helping these people Yeah, exactly. It's really horrific to hear. Let
3: me take this in. Let me take in this person that has no one else and treat them however I want. Because they have no one else and no one probably cares. Yeah. Right. Which is terrible. So Dorothea went on to publish this absolutely scathing report. Quote, I proceed, gentlemen, briefly to call your attention to the present state of insane persons confined within this commonwealth, in cages, stalls, pens, chained, naked, beaten with rods, and lashed into obedience, end quote.
2: Dorothea's report and relentless lobbying led to a bill that expanded Massachusetts Mental Hospital. Yay. So (laughs) we get a
3: little uptick. Uh, Dorothea Mm. did not stop with Massachusetts, however. She traveled to North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and other states, succeeding quite often
2: to improve assistance for the mentally ill. Wow in New Jersey, after similar investigation of their asylums, unsurprisingly it wasn't much better, <laughs> she cited a number of cases to emphasize the importance of the state taking responsibility for this class of unfortunates. She gave as an example a man formerly respected as a legislator and jurist who suffering from mental decline, fell into hard times in old age, which can literally happen to anyone at any time right. Of course. <laughs> Uh, Dorothea discovered him lying on a small bed in a basement room of the county almshouse, bereft of even the most basic necessary comforts. She wrote, quote, this feeble and depressed old man, harsh, a pauper, <laughs> helpless, lonely, and yet conscious of surrounding circumstances and not now wholly obvious of the past. This feeble old man, who was he? Many members of the legislature knew this guy and Dorothea's plea was to provide moral treatment for the mentally ill, which consisted of three values, modesty, chastity, and delicacy. So all these people are like, Oh my God, we know this guy. He's me. He's like quote unquote normal. This happened to him. It could happen to me. It suddenly gives you the ability to be empathetic. Exactly. It is sad, but okay.
3: Because she was able to like, you know, basically show them, hey, this could happen to you. The resolution to authorize an asylum passed the following day. Oh my god, that's amazing. Right? The first committee made their report on February 25th, appealing to the New Jersey legislators to act at once. On March 25th, so only a month later, the bill was passed for the establishment of a state-run facility. In
2: 1846, Dorothea traveled to Illinois. What's up, Illinois girls? That's where I was born. (laughs) (laughs) To study mental illness While there she fell ill herself And spent the winter in Springfield Recovering However, she did submit a report To uh, the January 1847 Legislative session Which adopted legislation To establish Illinois' First state mental hospital.
1: Oh my God. So even
2: when she's like in the throes of her own illness, she is getting it done. She's like, no, I need to get shit done. I'm definitely not feeling inadequate right now. (laughs) Right?
3: (laughs) Um, So the first time she went to North Carolina, she was denied. However, upon her return, one of the board members' wives requested, as a dying wish, that Dorothea's plea be reconsidered and that, you know, a bill be looked at. Um, In 1849, They formed the State Medical Society because after the plea was made, they approved the bill because, of course, they were like, oh, well, it was a dying woman's wish. (laughs) Like, we should probably Mm -hmm. maybe look at that. Um, So not only did the State Medical Society form, there was a a legislation authorized for the construction of an institute in Raleigh, the capital, to care for mentally ill patients. They named it the Dix Hill Asylum in honor of Dorothy's father because... I don't know. People are jerks or something because <laughs> well, her we father was not a nice a person. So I'm like, I, I'm like, did she like offer up his name or were they just like, hey, your last name is Dick's. So we're just going to call it Dick's. And it's kind of for your father. Oh, my God. <laughs>
1: um,
3: but eventually, 100 years later, they re- did rename it to the Dorothea Dix Hospital Good. to honor her and not her father. Um, they also actually went on to open two more hospitals. Um, one in Morgantown, North Carolina, and then the third one was called Goldsboro Hospital for the Negro Insane, which was built in the eastern part of the state, because, of course, this was mm-hmm. still when things were segregated,
4: because,
3: mm-hmm. you know, also yeah, 1870s. That verbiage <laughs> is what it was actually called. Yeah, That's that, not that was the full title. Spent. Like, I'm not being, no, of like, offensive. That was legitimately the full title of this
2: hospital. Right. So, Dorothea was instrumental in founding the first public mental hospital in Pennsylvania, the Harrisburg State Hospital. Then, in 1853, she established its library and reading room because that's amazing. You gotta relax. Right? I was
3: to say she's up to like four or five hospitals under her ben- belt now.
2: Yeah, she's like Oprah. Is- you get a hospital. You get a hospital. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Look under your chairs. There's a hospital. So
3: she eventually <laughs> ended up in Washington at during the high point of her work, which was. A bill called the Bill for the Benefit of the Indigent Insane, which is a mouthful. <laughs> um, yeah. This legislation that she promoted asked for 12, 225 acres of federal land to be set aside, 10 wow. million of which I know. I read that number and I'm like, does that say 12 million? <laughs>
1: is that how many zeros is
3: that? Got it. Lots. Uh, so t- <laughs> 10 million of these acres would be used for the benefit of mentally ill with the remainder being used for the blind, deaf, and mute.
2: Wow. So she's not just looking out for, like, people with mental health issues. She's she's also like, if you have a disability and, you know, you need some extra help or can't live on your own. Mm
3: -hmm. The people that tend to be abandoned by the people they love.
2: Mm -hmm. God, that's an awful sentence. I mean,
3: not so much now because there's, like treatments and stuff but back then a lot of times it was
1: like we don't know how to deal with these people so... oh i i would say especially back then but now too people yeah i don't mm-hmm. know how to they throw their hands up i i love you but i don't know how to handle this exactly yeah. or they just
3: don't want to sometimes people are just like you know what i can't and yep that's not always wrong you know sure sometimes it's like okay maybe they're better off
2: not with you but you know so proceeds from the sale of this land would be distributed to the states to build and maintain asylums. Dorothea's land bill passed both houses of the United States Congress. But, because there's always a but, in
1: 1854,
2: President Franklin Pierce, who everyone forgot yeah. was a president. Yeah,
4: for
1: president. <laughs> I wrote that note and
2: I'm like, who the hell is President
3: Pierce? I actually, it's this
1: bad that I know he was our 14th president. <laughs> well, did I'm he just do? Here's the go.
3: Did he do anything good?
1: The No. Okay, the only there thing we go. I, <laughs> the only thing the only reason why he sticks out in my mind, I don't know why the number 14 sticks in my mind. The only thing I can very distinctly remember about Franklin Pierce is it was like after he uh received the presidency like it, he was inaugurated, he and his wife and kid or something are traveling on a train. Um and the something happened to the train, his kid ended up oh. dying. Oh, oh well,
3: right. Eh, i still don't feel better. i'm still gonna you, power can still, through. Yeah, you can still finish the sentence and i sorry i
2: wrote it if it makes anyone feel better <laughs> losing your family does not entitle you to doom hundreds of thousands of people
1: so. and and definitely don't quote me because i think like some of those facts are not correct <laughs> some of those facts are not facts um but you asked that is kind of how i remember yeah our 14th hey, president that's Franklin okay <laughs> So Franklin Pierce, who I'm not feeling that bad for,
2: argued that social welfare was the responsibility of the states, not the federal government, because screw that guy. (laughs) Yes. Side note, the bill is seen as a landmark in social welfare legislation in the United States, but not in a good way. Pierce's veto established a precedent for federal non-participation in social welfare that lasted for over 70 years until the emergency legislation of the New Deal of the 1930s Great Depression. So basically for 70 years, the federal government was like, Pierce said it's not our problem. So it's not our problem. It's the
3: state's problem. Sorry, guys.
2: Wow. Yeah. So
3: that sucked. Um, Dorothea was obviously like deeply discouraged by this defeat and probably didn't know what to do to herself. So she was like, screw it. I'm going back to Europe. She got her script for Europe. <laughs> she was like, I'm, I'm going back to the south of France. No, I'm kidding. Um, because she didn't go over there to rest and relax. She went over there and continued her work in mental health reform. She traveled to multiple countries, and not only did she work on mental health reform, she actually went to Nova Scotia in 1853 to to study its care of mentally ill. And during her visit, she went to an island called Sable Island, where she had heard that people were abandoning their mentally ill. Oh my gosh. Thankfully, this turned out to be mainly untrue. (sighs) Thankfully, um, however, while she was there, uh, there was a shipwreck and she actually helped with the rescue of the shipwrecked partic- like people. What
1: an amazing human being. I know. Right? We- we've
3: decided her, her catchphrase is, because why not?
2: <laughs> yes. I'm a teacher. I'm a mental health
1: advocate. I'm a sea rescuer. <laughs>
3: exactly.
1: Right. It just seems like whatever circumstance she was in, she found a way to be the helper. Right.
3: Which is great because she had the money to do it. Mm-hmm. Like, so that's wow. fantastic because sometimes a lot of times when you, you see people with money, they're like, you know what? No, I'm just going to deal Bezos. with myself and that's it. So <laughs> yeah. not only did she assist with a shipwreck while she was there, upon her return to Boston, she led a campaign that was successful to send upgraded life-saving equipment to Sable Island, as I said, because why not? Um, yep. And the day after the supplies arrived on the island, a shipwrecked, and because of the supplies they sent, 180 people were able to be saved. So this is a second oh ship God. that wrecked within like a few days? Is this? Uh, well, this is when she was back in Boston. Oh, okay. So I, d- I don't know the time frame between the two, but let's go with a few months. Okay. <laughs> it sounds like this island needs to get it together, though. And Dorothea helped them. Yeah, right? <laughs> they're, like, they're like, okay, guys, you keep crashing here, but we, we can save you now. It's fine. And this was just like
2: a little side adventure on she she's like a TV on her show, mental health campaign. She's just every like every oh. episode she's going to a new village and like, "How can I help you?" Right? Oh, totally. But on her mental health reform campaign, it must have been such a personal fight as someone who's clearly struggling with mental illness herself. It must have been absolutely horrifying to see people struggling with similar issues being abused thrown into cells with murderers or simply being ignored by a society who hope they just go away so she is every day fighting her own future well and especially since she probably saw her mother go through it oh god and kind of saw her
3: mother probably get kind of pushed to the side so our next section is entitled hello Hello, nurse nurse. Um, so, at the outbreak of the American Civil War, because that's where we are in this tale, uh, Dorothea worked for the Union Army as a superintendent of Army nurses. Oh my Note, god, what a badass. No, she never went to nurse, like, she was never trained as a nurse. I, I'm sure you can tell from our story never mentioning that. She, I don't really know how she got this position. They didn't go into detail in any of the research. You didn't need
1: qualifications to be a doctor no. then. No, so...
3: <laughs> We're at the point she is now, because why not, the superintendent of army nurses.
2: Honestly, I <laughs> yeah. felt very misled because when I was looking up amazing nurses, she was one of the first people that kept coming up. What? And then I'm halfway through this research. I'm like, she's not what? even a nurse yet. And then like, wait, randomly wait, wait, where randomly they were where does like, the
3: medical school come in? Right. And then like, out of nowhere, they were like, oh, and now she's the superintendent of nurses. And it's just like.
1: Wait, where did this come from? <laughs> I'm trying to remember. I don't again, don't quote me cuz these aren't exact facts, but I remember like listening to a podcast once about becoming like a medical professional during this time period and it was very much like uh you need to be at least I don't know, 18 or like 21 or something years old. You need to be a Christian uh and you need to take like one course in medical studies or something like that like I a, a kind of don't long
3: course. That. especially 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 yeah and you, need to, in yeah, and you w- need to be a guy especially in the war you don't have to be a dude you just have to look like a dude oh you and just have to masquerade you there you as go. a dude um, but because i covered that one yeah, you um, g- yeah i was gonna say you guys civil war um nurse that got uh, literally arrested as she was performing an amputation which i feel really bad for that guy like how scary would that be you're getting your leg cut off and someone was like we need to take your doctor like, Honestly, you're like
1: actually your doctor's a woman so we're
2: gonna need to excuse her now Thank if you're you. dying do you really care no like what kind of genitalia your doctor has no i, I do not. i do believe
3: she got to finish the amputation but still like for a split second <laughs> that guy had to be like well this is the end
1: <laughs> for for a split second he was definitely shitting his pants
2: <laughs> yep Now, we all know how tough you have to be to work with kids for years and years. As someone with experience working with kids for 13 years, you have to be tough, and you have to have really good Friday nights of drinks and wine and women's (laughs) history. (laughs) Well, Dorothea was as tough as they came, and didn't cut her nurses any slack. Though she was tough on the nurses and also she was super specific about them. So volunteers had to be aged speaking of, you know, qualifications to be a doctor. Nurses had to be ages 35 to 50 and plain looking. And no, these were okay. these were volunteers.
1: Yeah, essentially what she was saying is she needed women that the men they were treating weren't going to try to get in the pants.
3: Like not not the men they were treating, but you know, the doctors, yeah, they didn't you know, they kind of did it for a good reason. They were like, "We don't want our nurses harassed," right. but still, but like, the fact like that that's a thing. Yeah, because I covered. Right. I, I meant to look up her name, but I didn't. But I covered someone else that wanted to be a nurse during this time. Yeah, and Dorothea. She was too good yeah. looking. Dorothea Dix was like, "Yeah, no, you're too pretty. You can go do other things."
1: Wow, I was like, "Oh, that." That's, that, yeah, it's ouch. Like, that kind of hurts, but also thanks for the compliment. Right? Like, thank you for thinking I'm pretty. <laughs> oh, my God. But... You mean I can't be a nurse?
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Right? Oh. So, Dorothea's volunteers were also required to wear unhooped black or brown dresses with no jewelry or cosmetics intended not to draw the eyes of men so that they wouldn't be accosted, which, like, yeah. I'm dorothea was looking out for her gals in a of time course. where that was a thing but that's horrifying
4: right, right. It's kind
1: of yeah like because it's, of course it's it's the it's the age-old argument of yeah. it's women's faults when they're right are assaulted. It's, it's kind yes. of like
3: when you look at like school dress uniforms it's like why do i have to cover my shoulders because some dude apparently guys do. will be turned on by my yeah. shoulders yeah. but, you but that right. dude can
2: wear a hooters t-shirt <laughs> right. right or you know pants falling off their ass or whatever right So Dorothea also set impossibly high standards for her nurses, often firing ones she hadn't trained or hired because they did not meet her standards. However, because of this, the Army nurses were highly successful, not only in the field, but in the societal advancement of nurses. Because they didn't think much of nurses back in the day. No. And though Dorothea worked
3: for the Union Army... She and her nurses, because she taught them, did not discriminate when it came to patients, and they treated on both sides of the war. Now, at this time, it was very important to die at home, surrounded by your family who could record your last words and pray with you. But obviously, the Civil War presented a very dark reality that many would die alone and far from home. Nurses not only provided medical care, but they offered that comfort in their last moments
2: to many of the soldiers on the field. Because Dorothea and her nurses were treating soldiers on both sides, they were sometimes the only care available to Confederate soldiers. Oh. Wow. I know. I love that they did that, though. Like right? you know
3: mm-hmm. when she wasn't treating soldiers on the front line, Dorothea was fighting her own battles within the Union Army ranks. Doctors at the time didn't think much of their female staff, and particularly in the setting of war, they didn't believe that women belonged on a battlefield. Because women, even were were as the
2: nurses, pil- pillars of virtue,
3: exactly. They would openly harass and abuse the female nurses. Despite this, Dorothea continued to fight for more opportunities for her nurses and more training to fulfill the opportunities. Wow. What an awesome woman. I know. She was like, no, shut up, doctors. (laughs) Wow.
2: By the time Dorothea left her position at the war's end in 1865, she had appointed about 15% of the Union Army nurses. Yeah, wow. She was like the mother of the Union Army nurse. Corps. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah,
3: she did some great work, and Des- despite not being a nurse, <laughs> exactly,
2: <laughs> she did good.
3: Um, so, not, despite not being a nurse, but despite having worked for the Union Army during the American Civil War, Dorothea was not an abolitionist. Um, she disagreed with slavery on the grounds that people should have a choice in how they live, but she did not necessarily agree with fighting or colliding with the pro-slavery advocates. So. She was an abolitionist, but she very much was against slavery. She was just like, do we really need to go to war about this, guys? Yeah. Like,
2: Mm -hmm. eh. She was was (laughs) anti-war. And we felt Mm -hmm. it was important to include this because we do want to acknowledge the faults of the women we cover. Because no no, no one should be put on a pedestal. Exactly. And that's how we learn. Everyone's human. Today. Well, yep. she didn't want to fight against slavery. She wasn't going to encourage it. Dorothea vowed never to turn in an escaped slave. I did find one mention where it said like she had never been caught while doing this, which kind of leads me to believe at least on one occasion she helped a slave escape. But she was I, I would equate her to being like, oh, yeah, you know. Black Lives Matter is great, but I'm not really going to do anything pa- about it. Passive. I'm not going to hurt she, them, she was, but I'm not going to, like... She was
3: passive about yeah, it. Yeah. That's which, how I, like, yeah.
2: view it. Honestly, you know, silence only benefits the oppressor, yeah. so... Mm. Shame, Dorothea. <sighs> You're awesome yeah. everywhere t- else, t- Tiny but. bit of shame
3: right there. Um, So... After running her own school, campaigning for international mental health care reform, leading and training nurses in the American Civil War, most of us would be ready for a break, or just to be like, you know what, I'm rich, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be done now. Yeah. <laughs> um, Dorothea, however, while she had earned one, decided. That she was going to embody the can't stop, won't stop mentality and began working to raise funds for a national
1: monument that would honor the soldiers killed in the American Civil War. Gosh, she never stopped.
3: No, she was she just like, guys, not. I just need something. And it to didn't do. matter
1: what the cause was. I mean, it's like I, I can see like her primary motive was reforming mental illness, uh, but it, did, it didn't matter what. Like if she saw a breakage, she was going to fix it. Right. It was, I think she saw a need. She was going to help. Yeah. Her overall like thing was almost just like helping
3: the less fortunate Mm. wherever, whatever, in whatever that you like meant mentally ill, you know, soldiers that died, people in shipwrecks, you know, like (laughs) someone needs help. I'm going to help. Yeah. So when,
2: when she wasn't fundraising, Dorothea continued fighting for social reform. She just kept, she just kept going. And all
3: of her hard work resulted in widespread reforms In hospitals, in building of hospitals, both at home and
2: abroad. After a life of teaching, advocacy, and healing, Dorothea succumbed to illness and spent her remaining days in a suite specially designed for her. And probably by her. Yeah. Let's be honest. (laughs) At the New Jersey State (laughs) Hospital. She died on July seventeenth, 1887, at 82 years old. Which is pretty good for this time period. For sure. Especially for someone that has an illness.
3: You know, like... Because a lot of times they got locked up early in life, and then they would just kind of waste away in an asylum. Like, she lived a very full life. Yeah. She did. Uh, So this is our legacy section. Those who have listened to us before know that we try and add a legacy section to each woman about, you know, basically what happened after their life. Their honors,
2: their accolades, their impact. So
3: obviously, Dorothea did a lot during her life and received a variety of honors and accolades, both during her life and post-mortem. And
2: there are so many that we're not going to list. These were just kind of our cherry-picked favorites, so Kelly and I are just going to fire back and forth. In 1866, Dorothea was awarded two national flags for her work during the Civil War. In 1979,
3: she was inducted into the Women's Hall of Fame in Seneca Falls, New York, the site of the first Women's Rights
2: Convention. In uh-huh. 1999, a series of marble panels and accompanying bronze busts were installed in the Massachusetts State House. For her relentless work on mental health reformation in Massachusetts, Dorothea was honored as one of the busts along with five other women. So it was like wow. six total, all chicks. Yep. And that's definitely that's awesome. on our uh, list in our
3: history tour. <laughs> <laughs> totally. It, in August of 2006, the Banger Health Institute in Banger, Maine was renamed the Dorothea Dix Psychiatric Center. What a great wow. name for a hospital. The hospital's banger. <laughs>
2: A crater on Venus was named Dix after Dorothea. And Kelly mentioned last night all of the craters on Venus are named after women. What? Hell yeah. I
3: I think it's probably the whole, like, you know, women are from Venus, men are from Mars thing, but
2: I'm pretty sure, I'm like 90% sure that all
3: craters on Venus are named after women. That's awesome. That's amazing. And for all of our or your depending on your your people if they listen to both of us are history stamp collectors which we mention if they have stamps in 1983 the United States Postal Service created a 1 cent stamp for Dorothea Dix as part of the Great American Series and just as a side note current stamps cost 55 cents
2: so but she's number 1 She's number 1
3: <laughs> But yeah so there's a stamp out there with her face on it That's yeah.
2: amazing so that, that is it. the story of Dorothea bad Ass, babe, dicks. Love
0: it. Love
1: it. Oh my gosh! Thank you guys so much. I consider myself to be a huge women's history nerd, and I had never heard of her. And I think she's important in any time, but especially right now. uh, In the last few years, mental health has finally received the attention that it has always deserved. I'm so happy. (laughs) Finally, in the last probably like, what would you say, Kelly? Maybe like. Five years, five so, years. I feel yeah. like, oh yeah, but then it's, especially... it's only
3: going to get more important mm-hmm. now. Because Absolutely, I think a lot of especially... people because of this being yes. stuck at home are realizing yes. how important mental health <laughs> is.
0: We were literally <laughs> just yes, talking think... about that.
1: today Lee and I were talking about or yeah yeah, it was today or pretty much every day I'm thinking like oh right we talked about it yesterday too but oh yeah that's because we talk about it almost every day (laughs) yeah Um, (laughs) because I think that people that have never struggled with mental health are now exposed to a completely different world where you're stuck inside all the time there's a loss of jobs right feeling of hopelessness uh, (laughs) <laughs> it's, it's this is gonna sound terrible but it's an exciting time in the field
3: of psychology oh yeah it, no it <laughs> is <isn't. And, laughs> uh,
0: from a historical perspective like I mean we've said this in multiple really episodes but like as crazy and terrible as it is right now it's kind of cool to know you're living through what's definitely going to be in the history textbooks
3: oh yeah exactly Absolutely. And it, it's it's interesting to think about it it's like you know people one day are theoretically going to be able to look back at you know our podcasts or other podcasts and they're going to be like wow look at this weird thing that happened in history right yeah so
0: it is no better time to be
2: a herstory hero
3: well
0: now we're gonna take a break before rachel and i tell our story and as you guys know on hashtag history podcast we just can't cover a topic in history without also consuming copious amounts of alcohol so. Hey, more <laughs> so off we go to make those cocktails and then we will be right back. Welcome back, guys. Since the story we will be discussing tonight kicks off at Cambridge Hospital in lovely Massachusetts, I decided we should try out the aptly named Cambridge Cocktail. And didn't your guys' story, a lot of it took place in Massachusetts? Yeah. Period? Yep. <laughs> yeah. So it's Kismet. <laughs> kismet. The specific recipe we're working off of contains gin, apple juice, and ginger beer. <laughs> we, yeah, we, we all talked about how much we disliked gin before we started yep.
3: recording. So, so pine
2: solly. But here we are.
3: <laughs> you know, maybe the like piney flavor and the apple juice will like mix well together. Balance. That's my hope. Yeah.
0: I did read somewhere that gin goes pairs well with apple. I could see that. Yeah. Um, y- and anyways, it is garnished with an apple slice, which we almost had a renegade, uh, apple
3: situation
2: we had some rotten apples we had had an apple throw itself off of the table into a (laughs) pile of dog hair it's
3: been you know apple crazy over here
2: oh man
0: well (laughs) as always we will put the specific measurements and recipe for this cocktail on our instagram for you to duplicate and drink along with us if you guys want to Now, as has been the case lately, there isn't really a backstory to this cocktail. So instead, I'm going to throw a loosely related fun fact your way. Ready?
3: Ready. Yes. Ready.
0: Okay. Did any of you know that ginger beer, as we know it today, was believed to have been invented or at least popularized in Victoria-era England and can be traced back specifically to a manufacturing company in Yorkshire?
2: Did no not. i did not, not it. who would who I, i'm shocked it, <laughs> why would you i'm shocked that? it's like yeah. that recent someone was like ginger beer together <laughs> yeah
0: it, it, which like thank you yorkies because my god ginger beer is by far one of my favorite cocktail ingredients
3: i just love that it's called ginger beer and it's non-alcoholic yeah they they do make oh it is yeah no like a tradition the traditional ginger beer is a non-alcoholic like cocktail mixer. yeah and that's that that's what mine's non-alcoholic but they- <laughs> Emily's over here like what yeah Mind oh blown. my god o- ours is also non-alcoholic yeah they do
0: make I bought make, it at Target versions though which I tend to like only when I really want to you know feel it
3: feel it <laughs> I would I would assume an alcoholic ginger beer would probably be similar to like a canned moscow mule where it's ginger beer and vodka not like not actual beer is what my assumption and that's why i would have assumed that the russians made ginger beer because whenever i think of ginger beer i think of the moscow mule yeah for sure
2: definitely me too
3: well
0: cheers you guys let let me know what you think
1: oh yeah
2: you know it's really interesting because i don't like gin I don't like ginger, but this is actually, That's actually pretty good. Yeah, I actually
3: like that. I would drink that um, again,
1: folks. This is, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah,
3: no, this is, yeah, because I'm the same. I don't really like ginger beer, but this is like a this is like a the ginger beer is like a topper, and it's yeah. like just enough that it kind of adds mm-hmm. that like warm spiciness to the a- the apple um, juice. I almost said cider, but it's not cider. Yeah. It's very good. I, I like a good cocktail pick ladies. Yeah. Yeah. I
0: like this one. It's one of my more, I mean, I feel like we've had really good cocktails this season, but it's definitely one killing it. I've been killing it.
1: (laughs) You know why? Because few of them have been gin cocktails, but this one is a gin (laughs) cocktail and it's fantastic. I, that's what I like. I was going to say every single thing in this drink i love. I love apple, anything. I love ginger beer, anything. I do not appreciate gin And I was afraid it was going to have like a strong gin taste. It does not. So Leah, you had mentioned like before we started recording that you didn't have quite as much gin to fill up like a whole shot. I did. And we actually can't taste the gin. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's very good. There's maybe
3: like an aftertaste. That's a little for me like that's a little piney, but it's not Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. like it's really mellowed out by the apple juice. Totally. It's good. I like it. This is brilliant. We yeah.
0: generally like to rate them on a scale of 1 to 10, guys. So what would you rate it?
3: I'm going to go with like a 7.
2: I was going to say a 6. like. If I had the option of a Manhattan, I wouldn't order this in a bar. But like, <laughs> I think you if would someone literally order, it order me, a Manhattan
3: over any other drink on the planet, I don't know <laughs> if you can compare that.
2: The only time I don't order a Manhattan is if I'm if I'm in a crummy bar and I'm like, they don't know how to make a Manhattan. Give me a Jack and Coke. <laughs> yeah,
4: give
3: me something that is literally so easy you can't screw it up. But like,
2: yeah, I, I you know if someone bought this for me, I definitely drink it. Yeah, yeah. I, would, I would say seven.
1: This yeah. I think my rating's going to be an 8. Wow. Which is the highest I have ever rated a gin cocktail. Wow. It
0: definitely is. Yeah, no, I'm I'm going to say 7. 7.5. 7.
2: Yeah. <laughs> this is beautiful. This the is gin this cocktail is... is not a bummer. All yeah, right.
3: Good yeah. job. We had a good and wine and a good cocktail. We're on a roll. Good
1: killing it tonight and the i like the aesthetic of the drink with the like apple garnish Mm -hmm. and i did put an apple slice in my drink too the actual color of the drink looks like urine on, like, a very, very good uh, water intake That's what yours
3: looks like. I think Mm -hmm. we had a darker ginger beer, so ours looks like we need to drink a bit more water.
1: (laughs) Ours looks like T-Rex
3: piss. (laughs) Yeah, a little bit.
1: (laughs) One of those days when you go pee and you're like, oh, my God. You're like, did I drink water yesterday? (laughs) Am I dying? (laughs) Have have I had water at all (laughs) in the last seven days? Right? (laughs) This is the kind where, like, when you pee, you're proud of yourself. That's what. Yeah, right. Where you're like, like, yes,
3: my doctor would be so happy with me right now. <laughs> oh my now. god, I'm yes.
4: take a pic. <laughs> <Yes>. Gram that.
1: <laughs> Fantastic. I think I just really love it because I love ginger beer, though. So like I teased at the top of the episode, the woman that we are covering on this week's episode is an infamous American serial killer who worked as a nurse in Boston, Massachusetts, and was responsible for the deaths of dozens of patients over the span of two decades. When caught, she is quoted as saying that her ultimate goal was to have killed more people helpless people than any other man or woman who ever lived lofty
0: goals <laughs> Ugh,
4: I'm ex- it's i feel
1: bad because i'm excited because i'm like a, i'm
3: trying to f- like a, a crimophile yeah you oh, yeah. am you're i a, am i creating a word i don't know you're a crime a, junkie yeah i'm a cr- like a i actually yeah there you
2: go it depends on what podcast and i have to- been
3: for a really long time and so i yeah. know who this woman is but i like briefly skimmed your notes I didn't read them because I want to be surprised because even just briefly skimming your notes I was like I don't know some of this and that's really exciting oh yeah in I a am really terrible way super
1: jazzed Leah and I have forever said that our podcast is like a history slash true crime podcast yeah yeah I want to hear about how this chick murders a bunch of poor people <laughs> now this woman was Jane Toppin or as she would come to be known jolly jane she was born honora kelly yes a completely different name than jane Toppin. we will need, get to that shortly. i need to change my name now because yeah, that is because she even name spells, how she spells it. it
3: i mean it's her last name but
1: still i need to change that's my okay because she changed her name oh yeah so you're true. fine it's <laughs> fine yep yep now she was born on march 31st 1854 She grew up in a very rough, abusive household and was given up to an orphanage alongside one of her older sisters at the age of six. Jane's mother, Bridget, had died of tuberculosis when she was really young, and Jane's father, Peter, went into a severe downward spiral. In addition to heavily abusing alcohol and also heavily abusing his daughters, he was legitimately insane. And rumor has it that while working as a tailor, his employer walked in on Peter attempting to sew what? his eyelids closed. Ugh. WTF, guys. Cursory headcanon Whoa. that death happened. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> there are stories that Peter Kelly had a name around town as Kelly the Crack. As Wait, in that's, crack my no, Ke- yeah. <laughs> that's my nickname. Yeah. That's my nickname. What the hell? Yeah. <laughs> Kelly, from Whining About Herstory, we will not refer to you as Kelly the Crack. Uh, This is reserved for Peter Kelly. (laughs) Depending upon what source you gather your information from, it was either Peter that dropped six-year-old Jane and eight-year-old sister Delia off at the Boston Female Asylum, or it was their grandma after their father was committed to an asylum himself. Oh. Either way, the girls ended up at a female asylum and never saw their father again. Oof. That's the rough. sisters eventually... Oh, it's so... It's it's an awful, awful upbringing. The sisters eventually split up with an older sister, a sister that didn't go to the orphanage with them, becoming committed to an insane asylum herself, Delia becoming a prostitute, oh, and Jane becoming an indentured servant to Anne Toppin in Lowell, Massachusetts. Really, really rough upbringing, right, guys? Yeah.
2: This is like uh, the beginning of an HBO show mm. or something, just... Awful, sad, horrifying, and uh, as we've already discussed earlier in this episode, asylums at the time were really horrible places to be, and I mean, these kids are probably in there with, like, murderers or, you know, criminals. Oh, yeah, criminals.
1: Absolutely. We're talking mid-1800s, and they referred to it as an asylum. It was essentially an orphanage, but not great conditions here. Oof. It didn't get much better in the Toppin household where Jane had become an indentured servant for Anne Toppin. I'm going to refer to her as Mrs. Toppin. Uh, She apparently treated Jane pretty shitty while treating her actual daughter, Elizabeth, who was roughly the same age as Jane, strikingly different. History tells us that Jane was overweight and not particularly pretty. Elizabeth, on the other hand, was the exact opposite. Mrs. Toppin doted on Elizabeth and filled her head with all the things that the beautiful young girl could one day have. A husband, children, a home, but Jane, she was told time and time again that she would never have those things. I do have one uh, childhood picture here of Jane uploaded for you guys to check out. Now, typically, this is the
0: part of an episode where I make some quippy comment about a person's picture, all in the name of fun. (laughs) But in this particular case, Rachel and I both agreed that while we do not condone Topin's later behavior, which we will discuss very shortly, we can definitely draw a direct correlation from her really sad really abusive childhood much of which was spent being told she was ugly and fat by those closest to her to her behavior later in life so we do not condone body shaming whatsoever and for this reason we will just simply let you guys view the photo on our instagram so that you can make quippy comments in your own head about it if you so choose
2: Right? I have yeah. to say, I love the expression on her face. I know she's a murderer. and I'm not trying to give her props, but I mean, this she's is, got this, is this kind of murder. She's think. got kind of got this like sassy can do look, like <laughs> right? I
3: got when she has this. her arms crossed, like oh yeah. <laughs>
1: no, she she looks completely sassy. But I oh, I really yeah. appreciate what you said, Leah, because we don't want to condone in any way ever that we are also saying yeah, no, she was no, fat and ugly. No. You know, because there is a direct correlation to the way that she was treated as. A child and young adult into what she would end up doing. We're being nice. We're like, she kind of looks like a badass. (laughs) 100%. Sassy. And we're just going to learn that. We're giving her too much credit. Yeah, right. (laughs) Now, in addition to the things said about Jane's appearance, she also came from a family of Irish immigrants. We've touched on it in several episodes on the hashtag history podcast, but immigrants were treated exceptionally poorly in the United States during the mid 19th century. Especially Irish immigrants. Mm-hmm. Especially Irish immigrants. They made up a huge number of the immigrants coming to America during this time period. In fact, in the 1840s, about 50% of immigrants coming to America were from Ireland.
3: Potato famine.
1: <laughs> I'm really looking forward Yay! to your episode on that, actually, because I know it's on the list. It's got to be. Yes. The stereotypes about the Irish ran deep. In addition to stereotypes about all Irish people being drunks, Irish immigrants also faced intense discrimination because of their religious beliefs. The majority of Irish immigrants were Catholic and upon migrating to a predominantly Protestant country were hit with massive discrimination and hate. Now, these are the stereotypes that were placed on young Jane Toppin. Mrs. Toppin would lie and say Jane's parents were Italian and went so far as to completely change her name from Honora Kelly to Jane Toppin to further disassociate her from her Irish roots. There's a lot of discrepancy in the early records about Jane. So what I'm about to say depends on the source that you use for your information. But I believe only one source that I read said that the Toppen family did officially adopt Jane, legally changing her last name to Toppin. But the majority of sources say that they never did actually officially adopt her, but that she took on the family last name anyway. Again, to further disassociate herself from her roots. This is like...
2: Cinderella, with all of the worst implications included. Oh, yeah. Like like Cinderella is a power-washed-down version of Jane Toppin. (laughs) Minus the the murder. (laughs) That's like the opposite way. What could have happened,
1: what really happened. (laughs) With the kind of upbringing that Jane had, especially one in which her foster mother, if you want to call her that, essentially did what she could to erase Jane's identity... I don't think it comes as a huge surprise that Jane was prone to lying. According to historical records, the types of lies she was spreading were things like her dad was a world traveler and that's why he was never around or things like her older sister had married an Englishman and was off living her best and most adventurous life. While not healthy to fabricate one's entire life, I think we can all understand why she would want to do that. She had a really rough upbringing, one in which she was essentially told that who she was would never be good enough, and those hardships carried into her adulthood. As a young woman, Jane would have a fiancé that would end up leaving her for another woman. It is around this time that Jane's mental health really took a turn, and she attempted suicide for the first time. Oof. There's this really great piece of advice that my
2: mother gave me that was passed down from her father. And my mom always just repeated it in my ear. The people who seem to have it all are usually the ones who have the least. And it's yeah. this kind of tendency to build up your life mm-hmm. as being bigger and better than it is mm-hmm. as a response to how crummy you feel. And it's just it's right? so tragic to kind of peel back the curtain and be like, Oh, my God, your life is a nightmare. Yeah. Yep. And you're compensating by lying about it. And you can't even be truthful about who you are. So why would you
1: be truthful about anything else in your life? Mm. Well, and I think, too, like, of course, it it goes into what Leah was saying about, uh, like, why we chose not to describe that picture because we don't want to play into it all. The, the way that she was raised was horrible. The things that she ended up doing in her life. We also do not condone those, but we don't condone like body shaming or uh, any, any passes at her that fed into like the horrible treatment that she had as she grew up. But in that same regard, I think we can all say we grew up with a girl similar to this. That was like the annoying girl in school that like always told a lot. You nothing that came out of her mouth was straight. Right, yeah, like, just the really obnoxious girl that was always like, Oh, well, my dad, this, and my horse is bigger than yours. I feel like Jane Toppin was very much that. I person. still work with someone that's like oh that. Oh my god! I believe you. Whereas yeah, like I just... just
3: take everything that comes out of that person's mouth with a grain of salt because I'm like, Yep. Mm, you change your story every like second time I talk to oh you. Oh my
1: gosh. Complete.
3: Yeah, I know. I'm like,
1: uh, you embody everything someone says a millennial is, and I hate you. It. <laughs> <laughs> but also going to what Emily said, embodies maybe be someone that overcompensates because they have a lot to overcompensate potentially for. yes it's tragic it is it is at the age of 18 mrs toppin gave jane 50 dollars, which is the equivalent of a little over a thousand in today's money and released her from her servitude jane who had developed a friendship with her foster sister elizabeth chose to stay on at the house though and lived there until mrs toppin had passed and elizabeth got married This was a bit of a hard blow for Jane. It appeared as though everything that the late Mrs. Toppin had predicted had come true. Elizabeth had gotten married and was living in their beautiful home while Jane, now in her 30s, was single, overweight, and was staying on at the Toppin house, but now as Elizabeth and her husband's maid. Mm. Yeah, no, it's a messed up family dynamic. Mm. Like can you oh my imagine God, yeah. wor- like no. being your sister's servant through oh, your whole life? And Ugh. in eighteen eighty seven, when Jane was thirty three years old, she left to begin studying at Cambridge Hospital to become a nurse. Cheers to our Cambridge cocktail Mine's everybody, gone. which Yep, <laughs> I've already finished mine. <laughs> we're so blind, Emily. well, I have to drive, <laughs> so I'm <laughs> I'm holding on. Going off. slowly. Yeah. It was here at the hospital that she developed the nickname Jolly for a woman that would end up bringing so much torment and destruction upon so many lives. She was known for being a very jolly, cheerful, and positive person around the hospital, and her patients oh, adored her. It just like gives me the shivers. Like, yeah. Completely. Her instructors also liked her for the most part. She was a good student and a bit of a kiss up like i said like that person that we all grew up with or like uh kelly still works with (laughs) while other staff at the hospital didn't enjoy her perpetual lying and gossiping she did her best to make a good impression on her instructors but there was one thing that struck even them as rather odd about jane when it came time in their studies to observe autopsies unlike all of the other nursing students Jane got a kick out of it. She enjoyed watching the autopsies. And this is when something in her began to stir. Remember how I said Jane's patients adored her at the hospital? Well, the feeling was mutual. When Jane found herself drawn to particular patients, she would falsify their medical records to indicate that they needed to stay in the hospital longer than originally intended, just so she could hang out with them longer and get to know them better. so creepy that's that gross
2: this like makes me terrified to ever step yeah, into i know right i'm like <laughs> on this, again. You, like you get the one nurse who just seems really cool and nice it's like
1: okay i don't trust you <laughs> right? yeah because you're too nice you're too <laughs> nice, too nice. You're i creeping don't trust me out. your joy <laughs> yeah. and, and everyone calls you jolly i don't think so yeah, you're right. <laughs> I, know. I need a different nurse <laughs> Give, give me the bitchiest nurse please. on the ward. Yeah, please. <laughs> Can we bring grumpy back in here, please? Thank
4: you.
1: <laughs> it was here that Jane began her experiments. Tending to primarily treat the elderly, Toppin would inject her patients with morphine and atropine, which would bring her patients in and out of consciousness. We now know that this is also where she began her killing spree. In her own words, Jane admitted to killing a dozen people while she was still a student nurse. The exceptionally disturbing part about Jane is that she got a sexual thrill from killing her victims. While they were convulsing from seizures, she would crawl into bed beside them and hold them until they died. She wasn't stupid, though. She needed to keep up a reputation at the hospital, and There are a few patients that we know of that she would inject with this combination of drugs, but then bring them back from the brink of death. A miraculous feat that she could show off to her supervisors, colleagues, and other patients. Right. Like, look how good of a nurse I am. Can
2: you imagine being in the middle of dying... And the nurse just crawls into bed with you, like you're oh already God. dying, and you're like, "How could this get worse?" I mean, oh, hello, oh, there. It just I mean, did. If You're
3: in and out of consciousness, like you might not even know. Am
1: I hallucinating this? Please tell me this yeah, isn't please. real. We actually, please. you guys are spot on. We are literally just about to touch on someone's story that is mm. almost identical to what you were just saying.
4: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> I know. I'm just like, ew. <laughs> it's 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 creepy. Now, because of this. Thing that she would do where she would bring people back from the brink of death in addition to her cheery disposition she became one of the most liked nurses at the hospital mm. both by her patients and by her bosses even though some of her bosses at cambridge were suspicious of the number of patients that had died while in jane's care they still recommended her to the massachusetts general hospital in 1889 which was a really big deal as it was a very prestigious hospital here she continued her experiments on patients. One such patient, a woman named Amelia Finney, remembered being pretty in and out of consciousness after Jane had given her some bitter medicine following an operation. The patient wasn't quite sure if she was just having a bad dream, a a really like lucid dream as a side effect of the medication but she had a vague memory of Jane climbing on top of her in the hospital bed and kissing her all over her face. No. Jane only stopped when something startled her. It would be another 14 years Mm. before Jane was eventually arrested for her crimes that this woman learned that it hadn't been a dream, that this horrific memory that had lived in her mind for years and years had been real
2: imagine you're sitting down you're reading the paper and you're like oh there's that nurse oh my god right you're like oh god that was real i also want that was paper real. off my face right now
3: <laughs> like, <laughs> like, that
2: imagery
1: is can, like, it's feel it almost mm. it's horrible yeah that's gross jane ended up getting fired from the hospital but not for what one might suspect she was let go because of her liberal administration of opiates But even still, even with their suspicions and doubts, the hospital gave Jolly Jane the highest of recommendations, and she was able to take these to begin a very, very successful career as a private nurse.
3: Oh, that's even worse because there's less people paying attention to what you're doing.
0: I just don't understand how you could highly recommend someone who is getting fired for like liberal oh, yeah. liberal of administration
1: of opiates i mean other
2: than giving people tons of drugs she She's was just fine. swell she
1: was just fantastic well, exactly what you were saying leah we see example over and over of people giving her like highest recommendations even when they had Suspicions, Right. This
3: is like the second
2: hospital to do that. And it's like.
3: Correct. Yeah. And this so wh- happens yeah. in,
2: in modern day scenarios of angels of death. It's really easy to write this off as, oh, well, it was back in the 1800s and no one knew anything. It still happens today because hospitals don't want to be held liable for having exactly. a murderer on
1: staff. Yeah. Totally. Totally. In a time when the average private female nurse was making $5 a week, Jane was pulling in 25 a week. I ran these numbers through an inflation calculator, and $25 in the late 1800s is the equivalent today of over 700 So oh. she was making some pretty good money. Yeah, She's making more than me
2: for murdering people. <laughs>
1: I need a career change. Yeah, <laughs> no, total, like 700 bucks a week is good in today's money. Yeah. Right. We also know that in addition to lining her pockets with earned money, she was also lining her pockets with stolen goods from the homes of her patients. She was caught a few times for her petty theft, but eventually all charges against her were dropped. Why? Often referred to as her first confirmed kill, although we know she killed patients while at the hospitals. Jane killed her elderly landlord, Israel Dunham, in 1895 and then his wife, Lovey, just two years later after Jane complained that they were becoming, in her words, old and cranky Jeez. oh lovey
3: that, that is a terrible reason to kill somebody i mean like any reason you kill somebody is probably terrible
1: <laughs> there's a lot of quotes from jane where she saw no value for an elderly person's life
3: yeah she's just and, like, and she said meh. that
1: there's there's no her exact quote is there was no use oh for oh
3: gosh that's terrible thank god
2: yep. that we value the lives of our elderly today and that we would never put their lives in danger <sighs> for the sake of a haircut feel free to cut
0: that that was that was snarky no i love it
1: we like the snark (laughs) we know that she also went on shortly thereafter to kill myra connors the matron of saint john's theological school of cambridge jane had befriended myra but we know that the only reason why she did so was because she wanted to take myra's job as matron of the boarding school myra had a number of perks such as an apartment and a servant In addition to a steady paycheck, something that Jane, as a freelance nurse, couldn't always count on. At Myra's funeral, Jane was conveniently there to mention to Myra's boss that, hey, did you know that Myra was planning to leave her job anyway and had every intention of handing it over to me? What a f- coincidence! Omg, <laughs> Jane got the job, but was fired a year later as she had zero experience in finance and management. Shocker! There is
2: a there is an episode of uh, Roseanne where there one of them is looking for a job is literally scanning the obits to see who. Oh my god! Recent, where the recent wow. vacancies
1: are? Oh my uh, that's god. awful! That's terrible. <laughs> Jane's next victim is one that. Although it's not too surprising to hear, it is still super, super awful to hear. Do any of you guys have any guesses?
2: Mm-hmm. I think she. I think this is like the sequel horror movie where it's like Jane goes home. Yeah, I was going to say, oh, it, her yeah. mom's
3: already dead. Her dad's not in the picture.
1: So yeah, I would assume the sister. This time, it's yep. personal. Yeah, you-, you guys are on it. You're so yeah, on she, it. <laughs> she killed her foster sister, Elizabeth. Which
3: is sad, because didn't you say they had like Yes. Uh, Actually had a relationship,
1: unlike the mom who was a jerk. Yep. They had a friendship, and um, so much so that the sisters would regularly plan little vacations together. And that is where Jane chose to kill her sister. It was on one of these little vacations that they had planned that Elizabeth opened up and expressed herself to her sister Jane and told her, you know, I've been really struggling with depression lately. Jane told her, don't worry, I'll whip you up something real quick that'll make you feel better. Jane laced Elizabeth's water with strychnine. I like that she just happened no. to carry
3: strychnine with her. Yeah. Just because like she 100% medication. had the
1: intention. That's yeah. true. But still.
3: Of yeah. all the things to carry with you, you'd think like yeah. arsenic would be easier or something.
2: <laughs> I, that's so telling to their relationship, though, that Elizabeth would feel comfortable talking right? about. Right? And then Jane's I just I have like, all illness. right, I'm going to
1: kill you now. Yes. Ugh. Absolutely. That there was definitely a difference in the level of trust that they both felt with one another. Jane is reported as saying, as Elizabeth was dying. She said, I held her in my arms and watched with delight as she gasped her life out. Now, it doesn't take a genius to figure out why Jane chose to kill Elizabeth. We know that she had a deep jealousy and resentment from the mistreatment that Jane received growing up. But does it come as any surprise that she had another motive for killing Elizabeth? Money, money, money.
4: Thinking, yeah, like, <laughs> no, The say, house?
1: Yeah. <laughs> You, you guys are on to some things. you're onto very rational thoughts. Uh, but there is one other thing that Elizabeth had that Jane just couldn't manage. Any ideas? A man. A man. Oh my God, I I'm,
2: I'm not comfortable with how on top of this we are. We're <laughs> on,
4: on
1: fire. Yes, this girl is on fire. <laughs> Jane quickly tried to get in the pants of Elizabeth's widow Oramel Brigham. But he wasn't having any of it. It's
3: an interesting. Jane
1: decided to poison Brigham and nurse him back to health, hoping he would fall madly in love with her after miraculously saving his life. She
3: was basically hoping for um, Florence Nightingale syndrome. Yeah,
2: no one turns nothing turns yawn more like the post-death glow of your wife.
1: (laughs) Man, I'm a widow now. Time to get laid, Right. right? Now, of course, he wasn't having any of this when Brigham told Jane that he would never marry her. She threatened him to say she had got that he had gotten her pregnant. This still did not work. And Brigham kicked her out of his house. She attempted suicide with an overdose of morphine, but was unsuccessful. How Jane, of all people, could be unsuccessful in administering the appropriate amount of morphine to cause death is beyond me. But anyway. (laughs) My God. (laughs) It was
3: probably she didn't actually want to die.
1: Exactly. She was shortly thereafter taken to the hospital for a brief period of time. But then she got out and began her killing spree once again. Jane had begun renting a cottage from the Davis family, but wasn't keeping up on paying her rent. When Maddie Davis, the matriarch, came to collect the rent from Jane, Jane killed her with her infamous concoction of morphine and atropine. In an insanely ballsy and shameless response, Jane then moved into Maddie's elderly husband Alden's house to care for him. It should come as no surprise that Alden, too, died shortly thereafter. Shocker. Total coincidence. When his two adult daughters, Minnie and Geraldine came snooping around to figure out what was going on. Jane killed them too. Suspicious of how an entire family could die so suddenly in the span of six weeks. You guys, Minnie's father-in-law had her body exhumed and a toxicologist was able to confirm traces of morphine and atropine in her system. On October 19th, 1901, Jane was arrested Although she formally confessed to 31 murders, historians believe the number of victims to be closer to 100. Jane expressed to her attorney that she did not want to be deemed insane, that she had known what she was doing, she knew it was wrong, and that she felt no remorse for it. If she was deemed insane, she knew that she had no chance of ever being free again. Because
2: admitting that you're like, oh yeah, I knew it was wrong and I'm totally okay with that, you know, you you
1: get off lighter. Mm. Unfortunately, yes. Like, uh, say a jury found her guilty, she may have the chance at an appeal, maybe living outside of bars once again. Bail, yes. Versus knowing she was going to be put away in an asylum for the rest of her life if she Uh was found insane. Now, things didn't look good for Jane at her trial. The jury was disgusted to hear of a female serial killer. And not just any female serial killer, but one that got off sexually at murder. They couldn't rationalize this. After only 27 minutes of deliberations, the jury found her not guilty by reason of insanity and had her sent to Taunton State Hospital, where she would spend the rest of her life. I've uploaded a picture here for you guys to check out what she looked like at the start of her stay at Taunton versus what she looked like just a year after being there, and I think it is totally 100% appropriate to describe the differences that you see.
4: She definitely,
3: like looks more gaunt like she definitely lost weight like you can tell in her face that like she you can definitely see her like cheekbones and stuff much more vividly than you could when she got there yeah that's probably the biggest thing i see yeah that for sure that's that's my biggest take. she still looks super snarky though (laughs) in both sets of photos yeah she like has that smirk in both and she's like rolling her eyes in the second like the the first one of her second year she's like oh god
2: you know what? That, that smirk takes on an entirely different light when you realize what she's done. Oh, like, yeah. before she started the murdering, I could get behind the smirk. And now I'm like, stop now it. Now it's creepy. Stop yeah. everything that's yeah. going on here.
1: Because you're a horrible human being. Right. Yeah. Toffin died at Taunton in August of 1938 at the age of 84. She would go down in history as one of the most infamous serial killers and one of the darkest examples of a medical professional on the wrong side of history. And it would appear that she never changed and never had remorse for her crimes. Attendants at the insane asylum where she died remember her saying to them once, get some morphine, dearie, and we'll go out in the yard. You and I will have a lot of fun seeing them die.
4: Oh, creepy.
1: Horrible. Creepy, creepy, creepy. You know what I think is interesting
2: is, like, you, you described during the trial how they were so disgusted by a female ce- serial killer and one who found sexual gratification. And, it, like, it just popped up into my head. Like, it combines their two worst fears of women, violence no, totally. and sexuality.
3: Yep. <laughs> totally. Just like Nope. We- clearly she's insane. Yeah.
1: Yeah. We covered uh, Lizzie Borden in season two, I think. I love that episode. Yeah. And- <laughs> Oh, yeah, it's it's, it's like such a fascinating case, but it's roughly the same time period. It's like late eighteen hundreds is when uh her parents died, when she killed her parents. August fourth, eighteen ninety two, at ninety two Second Street in Fall River, Massachusetts. Okay. Oh and my
3: god! knows a creepy amount
2: about Lizzie Borden.
1: Oh my god, that was like very creepy and very fascinating. But that's right, it was uh, <laughs> August fourth because it's Leah's birthday. I remember ah! that <laughs>
4: that's even worse. <laughs>
1: that's right um but same deal like they found her not guilty because an all-white all-male jury could not imagine they couldn't fathom a female killer it wasn't possible
2: yeah no we're so delicate yeah not that like it's empowering to murder people but like sexism let a murderer get away but also it's
1: possible yes yeah yeah well guys that's the story of jane toppin super oh. disturbing so
3: so much like <laughs> like of me just going oh yeah I, I
0: yeah. don't know if you noticed I actually didn't have a lot of comments this time because I was just in, like
2: in dis- disturbed it, yeah <laughs> I wish I wish we <laughs> had a camera disturbed. on our faces because I was just like
3: the yeah. whole time yes. just making
2: horrible faces well, and,
3: and her comment like while she was on the ward just reminded me of a, of a woman that I had covered and it just like I who covered, was it um lizzie halliday
1: i don't remember right now because she Reminder.
2: i believe she kills someone on the ward she murdered a bunch of people uh she murdered a lot of her husbands and then when she was committed her favorite nurse was going to leave yeah, and so, so on the last her. day was, she ugh. cornered her in the ugh. bathroom and stabbed her with scissors God. 200 times because I mean, she didn't she, want her to leave she was
3: i'm surprised you actually didn't cover her on your thing of the electric chair she was the first woman sentenced to death by the electric That's, chair yes
1: yes 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 and i remember and now i remember covered, your episode about it and she it. was
3: covered by Nellie bly that i re- totally remember but yeah like so when now. you were talking about um
1: jay and like saying that to a nurse it reminded me of her i'm like oh yeah and it i mean it just goes to show she never ever had any kind of remorse no. or any human conscious it's about just, what she had done and she still wanted like she still wanted to do it she was like hey i'm yep. bored let's go kill people yep. Yep, Ugh. and I think something that we need to recognize too is her upbringing played a huge huge role in the person that she became.
2: Oh, absolutely. And it we can definitely acknowledge that she had a horrible childhood that you wouldn't wish on anyone definitely does not absolve her of her crimes, right? Right.
4: Thank you all
1: so much for listening to our season four finale episode of the hashtag history podcast. And thank you so much to Emily and Kelly for joining us and telling us the story of Dorothea Dix. Thank you so much for
3: having us. It was our pleasure.
1: As our hashtag history listeners know, we will share the pictures that we discussed in this episode to our Instagram and all sources used to put together this episode can be found on our website. You guys know the drill. If you enjoyed the episode, do us a favor and subscribe to Hashtag History on whatever podcast platform you use, share it with a friend, and give us a rate and review. And Emily and
0: Kelly, go ahead and remind the people where the people. The people. The people. The people. <laughs> Them,
2: the people.
0: <laughs> where they can find you, you guys.
2: Um. So you can find us on all major podcast platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher,
4: all yeah, of, et etc there
2: you can like us on facebook whining about herstory and also real quick i didn't say us at the top it's w-i-n-i-n-g like wine, wine. not w-h-i-n-g it's a thing like complaining yeah <laughs> it's a thing. But it's, but it's it's like un- a complain. play on words yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah so that's whining about herstory on facebook w-a-h pod on instagram w-a-h underscore pod
3: on twitter and our website is whiningaboutherstory.com and then also rate and review if you
4: like us. Please. Whatever. <laughs> yes,
1: yes, yes. Rate NDD. and reviews matter, guys. Now typically uh we Lee and I we take a month off or so between seasons, but you guys won't have to wait quite that long this time because, uh, Leah, do you want to tell them what we have up our sleeves? Okay. We were telling <laughs>
0: um, the whining girl. Uh, that sounds bad. The whining, the whining girls.
2: girls. I kind of <laughs> like I'm
0: okay with that, though. Okay.
2: Because we're, we're owning it. Because whenever women talk about anything or have any complaints, it's well, whining. stop whining. Well, stop We're bagging. taking whining seriously.
4: <laughs> I love it.
0: Well, we were telling Emily and Kelly about this earlier, but um, we plan on doing a special, an especial, if you will, (laughs) episode marking our one year anniversary of our first ever episode, which is in just two weeks. And guys, we may or may not be planning to get sloshed during said episode (laughs) because we are going to go through and drink all of our favorite drinks from this past year. Oh my God. It's going to be so dangerous. Yeah. I I am. I I know. I'm 100% on board with this. You guys have (laughs) to do it. Bad idea or brilliant. Who knows? Maybe we'll do a poll on Instagram to get our audience's input. And love it. Yeah. And speaking of Instagram, be sure to check us out on Instagram at hashtag history underscore podcast for photos,
1: contests,
0: updates, cool pictures of us and so much more.
1: (laughs) Thank you all so much. Bye. 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 (laughs) We could work on our
4: harmonies, but not bad.